I don't know about you, but uh, I've felt that sense of people do refer to it as ecstasy. I mean, the, the word ecstasy is Greek for being outside of oneself. Have you ever gone to a concert and for hours after you feel almost high, you feel so revved up by the experience and so amazed by the feeling that you had. People will talk about a peak concert experience for days. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. All right, with me in conversation, new author Adriana Barton of the book Wired for Music, also a former writer for the Globe and Mail. Thanks for joining me. Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and it's a pleasure to chat with someone who's uh, really at the forefront of a really interesting intersection of two of your passions, journalism and music. And health. I mean, mainly at the Globe and Mail, I, mm. I covered medical science and health. And so it was really my geeky interest in the human body and brain that drew me to write this book. And of course, I had this unfinished business with music that also added another layer to it. But it was it started out as an intellectual exercise because I was passionate about the new studies coming out about the effects of music on our bodies and brain. Yeah, so take me back. What was that first message that you saw pop up one day while uh, covering and just diligently doing your research for the globe and something sort of stuck with you that you couldn't really let go? It was irrefutable proof that music truly stimulates dopamine in the brain. And we're hearing a lot about dopamine because it's often associated with addiction, but it's a very important brain chemical. It is involved in our pleasure and our reward circuitry, as well as important functions such as movement. For example, in, in Parkinson's disease, one of the things that impedes smooth movement is a drop in dopamine. It's very important to us and our health. So when uh, a team at McGill University proved through the best methods that music creates a surge of dopamine in the brain, when we like the music at least, that changed everything in terms of how scientists regarded music and its capacity to help us in different ways. And when you became aware of this, how did that sort of really strike a, a particular chord with you personally, given your music background? Well, it was an interesting thing because at first I didn't relate it to my own experience. I thought, well, that's a really cool finding. And I should back up and say that discovery wasn't the only thing that, you know, tuned people on to the, right. the healing uh, therapeutic benefits of music. I mean, music therapy is a very long and, and, um, respected profession at this point. But just to have that that proof in a neuroscientist lab was was quite striking for the the field, I think. For me at first it was just a geeky cool thing. Later on though, I mean what's interesting when you write a book, you start to ponder things iteratively, like what begins as a as a concept beca becomes a a point for reflection. And so as I went back into my musical past, I thought about the ways that music gave me pleasure, which would stimulate the pleasure reward circuitry. But I also thought about the mixed feelings I had with music. I had baggage from essentially being a failed cellist. I mean, I gave that pursuit my all for 17 years of my life. But along the way, I suffered uh, physical injuries. I suffered emotional scars, you could say just never feeling I was good enough, even though I, I 
reached great heights. It was this pervasive feeling that also affected how I experienced making music. Wow. Sounds like this has been a cathartic experience for you. You know, it has. It was my publisher who kept encouraging me to put more of myself in the book. I really Mm. wanted to keep it at arm's length. I had no intention of writing a part memoir at all. (laughs) But I got this encouragement from my publisher. And then my early readers kept saying, more of you, more of you. Your your story is the heart of the book. I didn't mm-hmm. really want to go there. For me, my musical experiences really felt, with the cello at least, felt like they had happened to somebody else. It was a, a lifetime ago. I don't even live in the same part of the country where all of that happened. And almost no one in my life today remembers me even playing the cello. So it really, there was a dramatic break from that life for me. And going back into it was hard. (laughs) But Mm. I'm also hearing from people that I'm not the only one with pain points around music. Some people took it far as I did and then crashed and burned. And other people walk around feeling as if they're tone deaf or unmusical or couldn't carry a beat to save their life. There's this musical concept that's quite common in Western European societies, and I call Canada and and US that because the the bulk of immigration that founded these nations, you know, on top of the indigenous cultures who existed here before, uh, are from Western Europe. And, And so there are reasons for that historically, but certainly it's a very pervasive feeling. And, and so I'm finding that people are relating to the book, even though not everyone became an accomplished cellist, a lot of people are walking around with with um, this yearning to be more involved in music. And what is it that you've really uncovered, the correlation between the human brain to finding rhythms in musical beats? There's just a, a wiring there, isn't there? There really is. And for a very long time, thinkers, including Steven Pinker, who is a linguist who I, I deeply respect, but his work focuses on capacities for language because that's a very powerful activity that we have as humans that do separate us from other animals who don't communicate the same way we do. And so there was this thinking that music kind of piggybacked on the capacities we have for language. But more recently, other thinkers, musicologists, paleo-historians, etc., gets very involved, have gone farther back in our evolution and have mounted a pretty strong argument that our capacities for rhythm and our capacities for pitch, uh, understanding and processing pitch in the brain, are much earlier than the development of language, and that language capacities and musical capacities might have kind of evolved over a parallel track and then split ways at some point. I get into a more colorful scene-setting description of those early musical abilities in our species in the book. And and some involve, you know, Paleolithic tools and, and the chipping of rock against rock, which would have been an early rhythmic activity involving the entire body as well as the auditory uh, system. And what we know is that neurons that fire together wire together which means the more they're used together the more they're strengthened and so if you think of 
early uh, hominid bodies striking rhythmically to create these stone tools that are 3.0 million years old, their auditory systems would have been hearing those sounds in this rhythmic way, and they would have been imitating each other making these tools. Gets more involved than that, but and I and certainly the paleo musicologists could explain it better. But in my book, you, you'll see a little more about that. The other thing is that people who think they they're not rhythmic or don't have rhythmic abilities more often than not their brains will still pick up rhythms in the way that anyone else's would it's less than two percent of people who have um, a cognitive difference in their ability to perceive rhythm and by that the the term that is used by researchers is beat deafness which isn't the mm-hmm. nicest term yeah. i would say you know cognitive abnormality and an ability to pick up uh, rhythm so the brain is working just fine what what often isn't working when people say that they're you know can't carry a beat to save their life is that they haven't had a chance to coordinate their body movements to music. They haven't been raised in a family where everyone's boogieing in the kitchen or where they're seeing dancing in the beaches and the streets in a carnival situation. So a lot of that is cultural or early exposure, I would say. And and uh, I don't know if you remember the movie Footloose. Of course. <laughs> Kevin Bacon. I mean, I think there was a remake. It's a pretty old reference at this point, but there was an entire town and I think it was loosely based on a real life town in which the adolescents weren't allowed to dance and and they didn't know how but this you know free spirit came into town and got everyone started and there was great joy and frivolity when people learned how to dance so mm. that actually can happen in real life that someone can get remedial dance lessons and learn to feel rhythms in their bodies even if they didn't early on and certainly some people will have more natural capacity than others but generally the brain is working just fine yeah you say the word footloose and i I feel like you want to start moving your body even even that just what it triggers and you can (laughs) picture those those running shoes tapping in time at the beginning opening sequence to the song yeah so if, if this is true about uh some of the early origins of when the brain picks up rhythms and as you say there's this natural overflow that your body sometimes moves Uh, The connection between song and dance, you get into that a little bit in the book, uh, the auditory cortex and the motor control center. How do you see these two things running parallel as people don't just come naturally or, you know, enjoy taking in music, but then are able to take that and, and really move with the music well? I think we move more to music well than people give themselves credit for already. So I'll give you an example. On Haida Gwaii, I was giving a presentation and there was a live musician there and he had sort of offered to team up with me and convey some of the concepts in my book uh, live, which was terrific. And so at at my signal, he started playing a fiddle tune at uh, a pulse or a tempo of 120 beats per minute. And sure enough, Now, this is a tempo in a study of 74,000 pop songs. It was shown to be the most common tempo, the most Hmm. frequent tempo, because that's the tempo that DJs use to lure people onto the dance floor for very, very good reason. It's about double the rate of a resting heart 
heartbeat. So the resting heart is about 60 to 70 beats per minute. 120 is roughly double that. And it's a tempo that time and time again is proven to get people wanting to move. And sure enough, when this live guitarist was playing or fiddling at that rate, people in the audience, their their feet started tapping, people started bopping their head, the whole body started to move in the chairs. And I walked on after the fiddler <laughs> had finished and said, look, you've just demonstrated the concept I was about to elaborate on. So that's one thing. Another is that if you are put in an MRI machine, which is that, you know, scary looking metal cylinder in, in which you are, you know, <laughs> fed into, and you're lying perfectly still, uh, listening to music, the putamen, which is part of your motor control center, will start to activate. It'll be stimulated in response to just listening motionless, which shows us that our bodies are priming for movement just in listening to music. And that is interesting, too, because this whole idea of sitting motionless in a concert hall and being afraid to move and not permitted to move is a pretty recent phenomenon in our evolutionary history. It's it's maybe a couple hundred years old, but even in the Middle Ages, people were not motionless and silent in concert halls. And to some of people who go to church and just are hands to their sides, you're kind of inviting them that they should be able to move along with the songs. Well, you see that in traditions in the United States. The whole bodies are moving. People are stepping back and forth whilst praising God with their song. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the 120 beats per minute. And you compare that in your book, you talk about uh, combating stress and how music can play a part in that. And you mentioned when music is at 60 to 80 beats per minute, the pace of what you said, a resting heartbeat, this helps to lower stress. So music is able to both lure us to dance and to kind of energize us, but also to, in a way, like sedate and calm us. It truly does. Uh, there was a, a Dutch review, a scientific review of more than 100 clinical trials, and they were showing that that pace of 60 to 70 beats per minute in, in music, they called it a moderate tranquilizing effect which is pretty wonderful from something with no side effects. Music stimulates parts of the brain that regulate our heart rate, our breathing, our cortisol levels, and our blood pressure. And that review of clinical trials showed that all of those things were slowed down and calmed by listening to music at that tempo. The other important thing to remember, though, is to get the most benefit, we really do have to like the music. So mm. tempo is one thing. I mean, tempo will get you wanting to move regardless of whether you like it. But to get more anxiety relief or or stress relief, it helps to like the music because that's where you're going to get more stimulation of the pleasure and reward circuitry. And it is from that circuitry that researchers have shown a descending analgesic effect, which is a pain relieving effect. Could you lean in a little bit more to people who maybe aren't that familiar with the idea of music therapy? I know some universities have uh, this as a program that students go in and study, and it can be a great aid to someone who is struggling in, in mental health. What does this look like practically and, and, and maybe even philosophically from what you've uncovered? Well, I'm, I'm clear in the introduction of my book that my book doesn't 
specifically cover music therapy. I read a lot of the music therapy literature in in researching my book, and I'm familiar with the broad strokes. And those are that uh, music therapy has increasingly affirmed itself as a valuable resource and as a its therapeutic potential is growing all the time. Uh, for instance, music therapists can help people relearn to talk after a stroke. I don't know if you know uh, the congressman, uh, Gabby Giffords, who a bullet was shot in into mm. the left side of her brain, and it destroyed her, her language center. A type of music therapy called melodic intonation therapy played a major part in her ability to relearn to talk. She rebuilt her language center, recruiting other parts of the brain, which is just astonishing. Wow. Uh, the Yeah, it was one of the most important things for that purpose. Um, music can also help people with Parkinson's disease. Dance therapy for Parkinson's is emerging as a very important tool. There was an incredible uh, study done in Toronto that followed people who began the study with I think it was moderate, mild to moderate Parkinson's, and they followed them for, I think, about three years and found that those who had a weekly dance lesson did not show the the, the typical progression of Parkinson's. Uh, they had to keep with it, but it allowed them to free up their motions, make them more fluid, and uh, have, have less depression, among other things. So I think that research is intensive and continuing and will only keep on uh, revealing the potential of music therapy because music just is able to recruit so many different parts of our brain functions. So that's a way to leverage that. You'd also devote a whole chapter to the unifying force of music and how it can unite people in a very unique way with what's going on in our brains. Could you elaborate on what you found in that area? Well, there's a lot I obviously can't cover in in our mm. conversation, but certainly, as you know better than anyone, I'm sure that we have a need to feel a sense of oneness in our lives. Uh, there was a wonderful paper out of the University of Mannheim that found that those who feel a sense of oneness, the feeling that everything is connected, show much higher levels of happiness and life satisfaction. And in this study, it didn't matter whether the person was atheist or Christian or Jewish, whatever, of different faiths had that need and benefited from that feeling of communion with something bigger than themselves. And there's been some work out of Harvard University trying to pinpoint in our brain, where does this come from? And there's some suggestion that it comes from an area deep in the brainstem. And this area seems to respond to compassion and love as well as music. And the name of it is the periaqueductal gray, for those who, mm. who want to look into that further. And the idea then is that spiritual needs are ancient and hardwired in us at a very early time in our evolution. So with music and spirituality and your research, what you more or less say is that music helps us to tap into the divine. When it comes to the connection of uttering a song or responding to a, a, a leader on the front of the stage, what about that exercise, that act in ourself makes us feel connected to something bigger. Yeah, well, I think that's a feeling many people have had 
uh, it's it's a reason we go to see giant stadium concerts because being in 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 a group like that experiencing music together we can all n- say it's different from listening to a recording on our iPhone it it's it seems bigger it seems vaster and you have a sense of unity with the people in the stadium and the reasons for that are more technical than you might think when we're listening to music together and this has been shown in a lab at McMaster with electrodes on audience members heads our brain waves start to synchronize with the the pulse of the music and when that's happening that means our brain waves are also synchronizing with each other the the music is offering an external locus of attention so we're all orienting to the musical beat but in the process our brain waves are synchronizing with the beat and each other and so music in that sense is literally getting us on the same wavelength but more importantly when that happens audience members report feeling more socially connected and more pleasure in the experience the other mm-hmm. thing is that music uh, stimulates more than 100 brain chemicals and one of them that has gotten a lot of attention is the chemical oxytocin which some people call the love drug which is not quite what it is it's more a brain chemical that is associated in social connection both on the negative side and the positive side but certainly they've demonstrated that in hospitals heart patients listening to music show surges of oxytocin when other heart patients who don't have music do not So even when we're listening to music by ourselves it's stimulating a brain chemical that that we think of or that that helps us experience or is associated with experiencing uh being in a group being with others you could say it makes us feel less alone appreciate you taking so much time to lean into uh, this intersection of music and humans and health Uh, Adriana Barton if you haven't uh check out her book it would be worth a read wired for music a search for health and joy through the science of sound appreciate your time thanks so much david it's a wonderful show you have going on and if you want to double back on any of the neuron related musical beat content that we covered i'm going to have a lengthy list at our show notes over at davidmanmedia.com/podcast Wow, as we come away from that conversation, I'm really floored by the connection between our brains and music. Just how finite that is. I mean, right down to the neurons and the way our bodies respond. And after hearing that, it got me praising God for how he created us with such intricacy. It's truly an argument for God's existence. I mean, this is an example of that. The fancy name for this would be the teleological argument. And simply put, what that means is if something contains evidence of being designed like our brains, then it must have a designer, right? For a design, there has to be a designer behind it. The universe is too complex and too orderly for it to be made by mere chance. We are wired for music and the way I think we should take conversations like this, we're reminded that God wired us for music. He wired this world. Next time on Culture at the Crossroads. Inflation is being experienced all across Canada, but the hardest places it's hitting is on the streets. Peter Durasamy is the CEO of Scott Mission in Toronto. We'll dive into how food banks have coped in these tough financial times and what it means to really serve the marginalized as a Christian. There was a gentleman who was uh, actually part of a worship team. He was a person on the streets, homeless and uh 
he came to know the Lord and he was so touched and he came up and spoke to me. But one of the things he said to me hit me hard. One of the things he said, David, was uh, when four years I was on the streets and I was homeless and I was drunk. Thanks for taking care of me. I could have been dead then. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.